This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is sponsored by the Union of British Columbia Performers. UBCP is an autonomous branch of the Alliance of Canadian Cinema, Television, and Radio Artists. For more about UBCP Actra, visit ubcp.com. That's ubcp.com. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry. Namely, the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Ronnie Furminger. Kainai, also known as the Blood Reserve, is the largest reserve in Canada. Since 2014, the community has lost hundreds of its members to fentanyl, a synthetic opioid 50 to 100 times more powerful than morphine. Every single member of the Kainai First Nation has been impacted by fentanyl and addiction-related loss, which is, quite frankly, the story in a lot of places all over the world, especially those that have been devastated by colonialism and its many ugly legacies, including cultural genocide. But Kainai's approach to addiction is radically different and is in fact rooted in the Blackfoot word Gimabi Pitsin, which means giving kindness to each other. Celebrated filmmaker Elmaya Tailfeathers is a member of the Kainai First Nation, as well as Sami from Norway. Her new film is Gimabi Pitsin, The Meaning of Empathy. It's a feature-length documentary that spans many years, and celebrates the harm reduction efforts that have been adopted in her community, in no small part due to the work of her mother, Dr. Esther Tailfeathers. Dr. Tailfeathers' efforts, as well as this film, are anchored in love and compassion. In Gimabi Pitsin, we meet community members active in addiction and recovery, and first responders and medical professionals who are using harm reduction to save lives. Held in love and hope for the future, Gimabi Pitsin, The Meaning of Empathy, asks the audience to be a part of this remarkable change with the community. Gimabi Pitsin, The Meaning of Empathy, will have its world premiere at the venerable Hot Docs Documentary Film Festival in Toronto, uh, which runs from April 29th to May 9th, 2021, followed by a highly anticipated run at the Doxa Documentary Film Festival in Vancouver, which will take place May 6th to 16th. Elmaya Tailfeathers. Welcome back to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you. It's, yeah, it's so nice to be back in this really strange virtual setting. What kind of documentary did you set out to make? And did you have any conversations with yourself about the kind of film you didn't want to make? You know, giving this body of, of work that's out there about addiction uh, that is exploitative. Yeah, absolutely. I had seen so many representations of my community that I felt were just um, really inauthentic, inaccurate portraits of the community that I know and love. Um, so often in the news media and even in like a vice documentary that was shot in the community, mm -hmm. um, 
I just felt like they got it so wrong. Uh, it was often, our community was often portrayed through like a trauma porn or poverty porn lens, um, wherein there was kind of like almost a salacious representation of, of drug use and, and addiction as a whole. Um, and also kind of like uh, through a, a criminal justice lens rather than through a health epidemic uh, or a health crisis, a public health crisis. Um, and my mother being one of the few medical doctors in the community, um, I'd heard so many stories from her about what she was witnessing every day at work. Um, and I knew that she was putting in countless hours um, behind the scenes with so many people from our community um, to try and find solutions. And, and that wasn't really being seen um, by the broader public. It wasn't being seen in the media all that much. Um, and I think people are just generally unaware of how much work is happening within the community and, and the type of work that is happening there. Um, and our community has become a national leader in terms of um, implementing harm reduction and just the ways in which we've responded to this crisis that we're seeing across the country. Yeah. For my listeners who aren't aware of um, the definitions of, of abstinence or uh, abstinence approach to addiction uh, and recovery and also harm reduction, can you describe these, these different approaches for them? Yeah, sure. So, um, there are, when it comes to, to treating addiction, there are generally two modes of treatment that are available. <laughs> the first is the most sort of commonly accepted mode, which is an abstinence-based model. So abstinence obviously means cutting off um, any and all drug and alcohol use, abstaining from, from use. Um, and many 12-step programs like AA or NA um, or in Indigenous communities, the Red Road to Albriety, um, those are all abstinence-based models. And what our community discovered very early on is that abstinence just does not work mm -hmm. um, most of the time when it comes to addictions like fentanyl. Um, what we were seeing is that people were being placed into treatment centers or rehabilitation centers that were abstinence-based. Um, they were leaving within a few days and then when they left, they would go and use alone because there's a sense of shame in, in that use. Um, and when they used alone, many of them were overdosing and dying. Um, and so we were losing people through the abstinence-based model and so our community, thanks to the support of, of um, organizations in the city of Lethbridge, um, we're kind of, and, and Edmonton as well, we're kind of pushed to try something new, which is harm reduction. Mm -hmm. And so um, people in Vancouver, I would say, are very familiar with what harm reduction is, but maybe not necessarily the broader public. Um, and harm reduction is, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a way of thinking. It's a way of approaching um, drug or alcohol use disorder in a way that we meet drug users or alcohol users where they're at. We don't expect them to, to suddenly quit cold turkey to stop using altogether because in many cases that's just an uh, unrealistic and inhumane expectation, um, especially with, with addictions like fentanyl. Um, I mean, when someone uh, becomes biologically addicted to fentanyl, um, the withdrawal symptoms are just so 
so awful. Like mm-hmm. many people say that it, you know, it feels like they're dying. Um, and to expect someone to have to go through those withdrawal symptoms and quit cold turkey and then all of a sudden turn their lives around, it's just, it's just so inhumane. Um, so harm reduction is, uh, you know, a set of procedures or policies or approaches to um, supporting people on their journey to, to recovery if, if they choose to recover, um, if that's something that they, that they want. Um, and so it's, it includes things like distributing clean needles to prevent the spread of disease. Um, it includes um, opioid agonist or opioid replacement therapy, such as methadone or suboxone, which is a means of, of offering um, an opioid that is regulated um, and prescribed and controlled. Uh, suboxone itself um, uh, also contains uh, contains uh, what's in naloxone, which is the antidote to an Mm. opioid overdose. Um, So people don't feel the same sort of like euphoria that they would feel um, when taking something like fentanyl. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a lot of things, but harm reduction, I would say is simply just a more humane approach to, um, to treating addiction. Harm reduction to me and doing things with love and compassion just seems like common sense. And yet it's just amazing, shocking, maybe not at all awful to look at the history of, of, you know, treating people um, for, you know, with addictions and yet you're not treating them as people, you know. Um, I felt a range of emotions watching this film from heartache to hope to joy to awe of your mother to love and to rage One of my rage-filled moments occurred um, when watching the mayor of Cardston speak to the issue of panhandling in her community. And while she does acknowledge the role that residential schools play in intergenerational trauma, she moves on from it pretty fast to blaming a lack of personal hygiene and personal finance skills. Um, All this is to say that colonialism remains a very destructive force for Kainai. If settlers aren't willing to acknowledge the root of the issues and their responsibility for them, what chance do you think, you know, your community's harm reduction efforts stand, especially when we look at what happened in Lethbridge with Arches? You know, uh, it was uh, doing important work. It was a a harm reduction site. It was a safe injection site. Um, And uh, there was a huge outcry from the white people and it, it got shut down, you know? So I'm just like, where, like, if, if settlers aren't willing to acknowledge their role in it, you know, what, what chance do we have? (laughs) Uh, Well, that's a, that's a a lot of questions. Sorry, (laughs) but I said I had a lot of emotions. (laughs) I had a lot of emotions and I just, I couldn't believe I love the editing there too, because it goes from personal hygiene and then you're literally, you know, in, in the a shelter watching somebody do their laundry, you know, and be like, what is, anyway, enough yeah. about me, please <laughs> answer whatever questions from that, that you would like to answer. Maya. <laughs> well, I think harm reduction as a whole is something that is not widely accepted because it's perceived as like a form of enabling because mm. you're giving people tools to use drugs or you're even providing them with a safe supply of drugs. Um, And there's kind of this like 
heavily ingrained mentality that the only way to um, to 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 quit is to quit cold turkey and abstinence is, is just the way we move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see it so much in popular media, like every single film or television show that features someone who's addicted will go to an AA meeting. You'll see like a, we're, we're all so familiar with that. Yeah. Um, and because there's just this like hardly ingrained attitude that abstinence is the way to go. Harm reduction is perceived as kind of, um, this like devious type thing that that um, is really just rooted in in enabling drug users. Yeah, um, and a lot of that mentality also goes back to sort of the war on drugs and um, and this heavily ingrained abstinence, like say no to drugs, all all of that stuff that yeah. that really actually isn't that helpful. Um, so yeah, harm reduction itself was was also not really accepted within my community, and it's still something that, um, hmm. that we're still we're, we're we're battling, which is which are these these attitudes towards harm reduction as being harmful or enabling. Um, that being said, we've seen such fantastic results in terms of saving lives and and changing. The, the reality of our community. Um, we are still losing a lot of people to overdose and that is happening uh, or drug poisoning, uh, which, which it, it really is, it's drug poisoning. It's not necessarily overdose. It's because they're taking unregulated doses of, of fentanyl or carfentanil or something else. They don't realize fentanyl or carfentanil fentanyl is in their drugs. Yeah. Um, so uh, so yeah, harm reduction is something that's not widely accepted, uh, even within my community. Yeah. Uh, so thinking about settler communities or places like Alberta, um, there, there is a very conservative attitude toward addiction as a whole or, mm-hmm. or drug use disorder. Um, and so the idea of even providing people with clean needles or providing them with a safe supply or providing them with um, opioid agonist therapy is just like so far removed from um, the conservative mentality that we see in Alberta. Um, And it's, it's impossible for me as someone from that community not to draw a connecting line between everything that's happened to our people with settler colonialism, with, you know, residential schools, with um, being placed on reserves, with everything that, uh, that the Indian Act um, imposed on our people, like the, the banning of our traditional ceremonies. Um, we weren't even allowed to leave the reserves without a pass from an Indian agent. Like there's, there's just so much harm that's been done to our people through settler colonialism. Um, and often it's framed as though it's something that happened in the past and it's not ongoing. But what we see in my community, and I think every Indigenous community, is that it is very much ongoing. And we see it in the attitudes of the nearby communities. Um, and we see it in the ways that our people are still, still very much entrenched in poverty mm. um, and lack of access to basic services that, that people in, like the nearby municipalities have. Um, and all of that is by design. Um, reserves were, <laughs> are designed to keep our people in a state of deficit um, and in a, in a position of not being able to, to thrive. Um, our, our power has been taken away in many ways. Um, but 
in this film, I really strive to show that despite all of that, our community is finding ways to move forward um, and that we are finding answers within ourselves and reflecting on um, the values that have gotten us through, the things that helped us survive genocide. Mm. And I think Gimabi Bitsen, um, which is the title of the film and a traditional Blackfoot teaching embodies all of that. Um, Gimabi Bitsen means to have empathy, to have compassion, um, and to value empathy and compassion um, as something that helps us survive as a people. Um, and I think we're seeing that very much within my community. So despite all of these barriers that we're facing, despite racism um, that is just so pervasive in that part of the world, um, despite the fact that so many of our people are, are living in poverty, um, we're finding ways to move forward and we're doing it as a community. And that was the intention of this film was to, was to show the strength and beauty and compassion and kindness that, that exists. And I certainly hope that audiences walk away with a sense of hope, but also an understanding that um, this isn't just an indigenous community's problem. This is, this is an issue that we're all implicated in um, and, and settlers do have, uh, do have a responsibility to, to reflect on the history that we've all inherited and also reflect on the, on the current reality that we're all living in. Um, and yeah, I certainly hope people walk away with that understanding as well. Well, I certainly did, and I watched the film three times already. So, <laughs> um, I want to talk about like the the making of this film, uh, which I'm assuming. I mean, you're. You, I, it feels like a passion project. It really does. You know. Um, can you tell me like the the details of like how long it it took to to film and. Um, and also, you know, about the c community that was with you along the way, you know, because uh, I understand that you you had an all Indigenous crew for for the film. Um, well, we had at some points we had an all Indigenous crew, um, but we did have an amazing cinematographer named Patrick McLaughlin um, and a number of sound recordists um, who were not Indigenous, but were just really wonderful collaborators. Mm. Um, but yeah, the the film itself was a five year long journey. Um, the crisis hit or started in 2014 and I started developing this project in 2016. Mm. Um, and it was an incredible learning journey. Um, I think often with documentary film, especially, there's this tendency uh, for, for privileged voices to um, to, to move into communities that they don't come from and depict, you know, their outsider perspective on that community. And, and often they have really great intentions um, and documentary, especially VR documentaries are kind of like um, uh, presented as like an empathy machine. Um, mm. And, and I, I, I kind of wanted to, to push against that. You know, I'm, I'm from this community. This is my family. These are my people. This is my home. Um, and thinking about the idea of narrative sovereignty when it comes to Indigenous storytelling, um, 
that was kind of a, a guiding principle. And, and to me, that means so many things. Um, but specifically, it's, it's about process. It's about consistently um, remaining accountable or being accountable to my community and to myself um, and uh, carrying an ethos of, of respect um, for my people and knowing that this story doesn't just belong to me. It belongs mm. to my entire community and it belongs especially to the, the participants and their families. Um, and with these types of stories, I'm, there's just a, a massive responsibility as a filmmaker when you're telling stories about people who are vulnerable. Um, I consistently had to ask myself, like, in making the choices that I did with, with the edit, um, how is that person going to feel about it five or ten years from now, especially the younger participants? Um, you know, they, their circumstances might change, um, and they might, they might uh, I don't know, feel shame or, or feel remorseful about participating, and I, I didn't want that at all. Mm. Um, and so I made sure that participants were consistently aware of the fact that they could drop out, they could stop interviews any time they were uncomfortable. Um, and they were also shown um, various cuts of the film to make sure that they were happy with the way that they were represented. Um, and that process certainly slowed us down, but I think it was an absolutely necessary step along the way. Um, and I, yeah, I, I felt that as a community member, I had the responsibility to listen to as many people as possible. So um, there were over 50 people who you see on screen um, participate in some way in this film, um, but there are so many more who participated um, and didn't end up in the film or who shared knowledge um, with me in order for me to be able to tell this story in the best way possible. Um, and so for me, it was never about making like an aesthetically beautiful documentary that would travel the festival circuit. It was about um, including as many voices as possible within my community um, and just showing a very broad um, but carefully considered portrait of the people that I know and love. Um, and there's so much more to the story, but um, but <laughs> we had to keep it under two hours. <laughs> How do you think the experience of making this documentary has changed you as a filmmaker? Um, I know in the time that, that you've been working on this film, I mean, you also worked on The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open. You're, you've worked on Cessna in the city before. I mean, you're everywhere. You're, you've got a lot on the go. Uh, and yet now that you, I mean, now this is going out into the world as well. Um, how has this changed you? And how will this, how will we see this film in your future work? Um, wow. I think this is probably one of the most important things I've ever done in my life. Um, I've been living in Vancouver for over 15 years now. And um, this was the first time I was able to go home and, and work on something and work with my community. Um, and it was one of the most meaningful things I've ever experienced was, was being able to, um, I guess, just be like a vessel um, for my community and, and their voices um, to be put on screen. Um, it was an honor 
to be able just to, to show how beautiful my community is, like that there's so many negative things that are said about us in the media and um, people don't understand just how beautiful Kainai is and how beautiful the people there and how beautiful our culture is. And so um, I think I'm going to carry that experience with me for the rest of my life. I want to continue being able to make work that is based in my community um, and that is for my community and that honors the strength and beauty of my community. Um, and yeah, I would say that's, that's how it changed me. I think it also, um, I was in a real rush to tell this story in the beginning. Um, I wanted to be finished like three years ago, <laughs> but because of all of the circumstances um, that we were under, um, I was forced to take a very slow approach to this. And I think that really shifted my perspective and my process as a filmmaker in that allowing for time to unfold in the way that it did um, really made this a much stronger project, mm -hmm. a much more nuanced journey, um, and one that doesn't necessarily prescribe solutions, um, but just shows how one community is finding solutions um, and also maybe showing stuff that doesn't necessarily work. Yeah, so if people, uh, if you want to keep up with the film, um, that's a good question. We will have, we will have a, a Facebook and an Instagram page soon for the film, and, and we'll keep you up to date on that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to premiere at Hot Docs, and then we'll soon after we'll play at Doxa, and then hopefully we'll be, we'll be playing at other festivals. And we're also so... Um, more than happy to facilitate community screenings if people are wanting to do screenings for, you know, for nonprofits or within educational institutions. Um, I think this film needs to be seen in those, in those uh, capacities. So yeah, please reach out to, uh, to the folks at the NFB um, uh, to, to facilitate those kinds of screenings. Fantastic. And I will have links to all of those yet to exist, but are coming soon. Facebook and Instagram accounts and everything in the episode notes uh, for this episode. Uh, Gimabi Pitson, The Meaning of Empathy, runs at Hot Dogs and Doxa. Uh, the film is produced by our guest, Elma Mayatel Feathers and Lori Lazinski of Seen Through Woman Productions and National Film Board of Canada producer and executive producer David Christensen of the Northwest Studio with the participation of Telefilm Canada and the assistance of the Hot Docs Cross Currents Canada Doc Fund. Thank you for joining us today. Please like and subscribe. Leave us a review if you are so inclined. They help us find even more listeners. Find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVR Screen Scene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by myself, Sabrina Ronnie Firminger, and it's edited by Simon Firminger. Special thanks to Mariana Firminger for recording our Patreon ad, to Paul Firminger for technical support, and to Dane, not Firminger, Devolay for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! In the current COVID-19 environment, UBCP Actra the BC Performers Union in the film and TV industry, has been working closely with industry partners, formulating sensible and practical guidelines for all cast and crew to ensure working on set is manageable 
and safe for everyone. UBCP ACTRA has created a dedicated COVID-19 webpage at www.ubcpactra.ca where members can find mental health resources, financial assistance information, and back-to-work strategies and updates about the current status of film production in the province of British Columbia. UBCP ACTRA knows this has been an extraordinarily difficult time for many people, and we look forward to better days ahead. We will get through this together. Please visit www.ubcpactra.ca. A message from UBCP ACTRA.